chapter 20. I want to begin reading with verse 13 and read uh, through verse uh, 38. It's a long passage, a rather emotional one as well, but I want us to see it and then we'll make some comments uh, about it. Uh, Acts in chapter 20, uh, beginning with verse 13. Hear the word of God. But going ahead to the ship, we, so notice Luke, who's the author of Acts, the human author of Acts, is including himself in this. It's important just to know that, that Luke is present with him. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So you notice some are going by the ship and Paul by land. And when we, when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to uh, Mytilene. So Paul then eventually joins up with them, and now they're all on the ship together. And sailing from there, we uh, came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he set sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, so notice again, you get the picture, Paul sailed past Ephesus. He had been in Ephesus recently, spent three years there, so a long period of time for him. And so he, he moves past Ephesus, comes to Miletus, but he wants to speak to the elders of Ephesus. So he calls for them to come to uh, Miletus, which is about 30 miles from Ephesus. You yourselves know, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God. And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent to the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when, we had, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being, most sorrow, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. And they would not, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, very emotional time. Obviously, with Paul and these people who care for him and, and, and those for whom he cares deeply. We can tell that in here. It's Paul's notion. It isn't so much, it appears, as if he has a word from God saying, you'll never see these people again. But it's just probably in his own thinking. There are times, I don't know about you, but there are times when I visit people and I I leave and I realize, I'll never see these people again. Probably. It's not so emotional necessarily as this, but, but you realize he's realizing in those days, at that time, uh, that he's leaving them and he probably has no plans to come back to that part of the world. He does, but he doesn't have any plans at this time to come to that part of the world. So he's thinking, I've spent three years with these people. And remember, he began this church in Ephesus. These elders probably came from the ranks of unbelievers whom he uh, trained night and day, as he puts it rather dramatically, but he, he trains them and, and, and now he's leaving them. And he, he knows the responsibility that's upon them. Now, what I want to do today, if God will help me, is eventually get to verse 32 and to spend a little bit of time there concentrating on this expression. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. But to get there, let me just set some general observations. Obviously, we're talking uh, about this man, Paul. He's an apostle. He's on a journey, a missionary journey, as we call it. It's his third major one, and he's traveling around, and he's, he's preaching the gospel. Uh, and, 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 uh, and we realize... That uh, that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to get to Jerusalem. He wants to celebrate the. He wants to celebrate Pentecost there. Pentecost was one of the three Jewish feasts where Jewish men were were required to come to Jerusalem and and to celebrate it there. Uh, he had missed Passover. He celebrated that in Philippi. We learned earlier, and now fifty days from that Passover event, he's still on his way, trying to get to um, to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Uh, and he'll, he'll do that, we'll see, in, in just uh, on probably next week or the week after. But uh, he'll get to, to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Why he doesn't go to Ephesus and visit the elders there, we don't quite know. It would have slowed him down, but not that much. Perhaps, just thinking humanly at this point, he, he may have thought it would have been difficult, if not impossible, to tear himself away from the whole community. And so rather than to go to Ephesus, he, he, he slides by, goes a bit past and says, okay, you come to me, elders come to me, I can send you away easier than I could leave you. Perhaps that's it, I don't know. But just think that through. And so now here he is with these particular elders. Now it's important for us to realize that he calls for the elders of Ephesus. Now that's very important to we Presbyterian types because the Greek word for elder there is presbuteros from which we get our word Presbyterian. Uh, You should know this if you've been through our new members class and if you haven't you should go through that. Uh, 
but uh, that's that's where we get this name Presbyterian. We're governed our churches by elders, and as as you read, as we read through the scriptures, we find that that's the structure of the church. God has structures. In the, within the context of the family, for instance, there are, there's husbands and wives, and there's a relationship between husbands and wives, and husbands and wives and children. We read about that relationship, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5, where husbands are the head of their households, as Christ is the head of the church, and wives are to be submissive to their husbands as unto the Lord. So we see that relationship. Children are to obey parents. So we see this structure in the context of the family. We see a structure in the context of church life, in the context of our spiritual lives. And we realize that God calls elders, these people, we have this word presbyteros, presbyters, to oversee the churches. So as we read through the book of Acts, we haven't drawn much attention to this yet because I knew I was coming to chapter 20 and we'd spend 20 seconds here. But uh, uh, that Paul, in the churches he founds, appoints elders before he leaves. For instance, in chapter 14, Paul is in a place and and it says simply that he, he appointed elders and then he left. These elders to govern the churches. So when Paul writes to Timothy, for instance, in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, he's telling Timothy about how to structure the church. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3 is about elders and qualifications for elders and deacons and qualifications for deacons. And so when Paul writes to, to Titus about organizing the church and how the church should be structured, how the church should be governed, in chapter 1 of Titus, he, he lays out who elders are to be. Uh, when Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, he refers to himself as a fellow elder, you see. And so this whole idea of elders, meaning the mature ones, spiritually mature ones, the proven ones, they're to govern the life of the church. And the church, therefore, in that context, is to submit to its leaders. As we were studying through Hebrews a few years ago in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, the author of Hebrews says, you know, obey your leaders, submit to your leaders. There's this sense of submissiveness to these elders, it's important to note as well that this is always in the plural for a church. The churches aren't to know one elder. That there are elders, plural, in the context of the life of the church. Not one. I'm not the elder of the church. and Everyone submits to me, if you will. But there's a group of men who are elders in the life of the church that are to oversee the church. And even here we, we find something of, 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 of what they're to be like. Paul refers to them uh, as, as, as shepherds, really, and overseers. Verse uh, 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Interestingly enough, that little word for overseer in Greek is the word episkopos. So we already see two denominations developing in Acts chapter 20. Uh, Presbyterians and Episcopalians. Now, we Presbyterians think the Episcopalians don't have it quite right. Because <laughs> we think that what elders do is to oversee. So, Paul isn't talking about two, two offices in the church. Or, he's talking about Presbyteroses who Episcopos. Uh, and so, uh, uh, so that's why we don't uh, have bishops, for instance. But we have elders who oversee. So that's, that's this sense, you see. We're trying to be biblical about how we structure ourselves. And you see, it's very important for Paul as he's writing this out. Because he's saying these elders are to shepherd, uh, are to oversee the flock. And that was a metaphor throughout the whole Bible. 
of what God is to do in our lives. For instance, in Ezekiel, in chapter 34, the prophet Ezekiel has, is, in a sense, condemning the, the present shepherds of Israel. And so he says that God will come and shepherd them. Now, we know who our chief shepherd is, the Lord Jesus. You would know the benediction that I often use. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. What's the next line? The great shepherd of the sheep. You see, I preached that benediction two weeks ago in a church in Florida. Uh, uh, The great shepherd of the sheep. He's the great shepherd. And so in Ezekiel 34, when, 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 when Ezekiel, the prophet, is condemning the shepherds of Israel, God says this, Ezekiel 34, verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been uh, scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. And God's saying, I'm going to be the great shepherd. And so Jesus comes, who's the great shepherd, The chief shepherd, Peter calls him. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, not the one who will run away when the difficulties come, but the one who will lay down his life for his sheep. So we know what a shepherd does. A shepherd is one who rescues sheep in danger. A shepherd is one who who leads sheep to pasture, good pasture. Jesus to lead us in paths of righteousness. Uh, We know he's the one who, who, who heals and binds up wounds of bruised and battered sheep. He, we know that the shepherd is the one who feeds sheep. You remember that after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus graciously uh, meets with Peter, who had denied him. And, and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And what is the next word that he gives to Peter? Feed my sheep. And it's not, therefore, odd to us or surprising to us that Peter... And, First Peter 5, calling himself a fellow elder shepherd, you see, because he understands that he's the one who'll feed his sheep. Because you see, as Paul is looking at the church in Ephesus, which he dearly loves, and he begins to speak to these elders about the responsibility there, he tells them uh, of the grave danger that exists. Notice how he puts it in, in, in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is not something casual. He's saying you have a responsibility, elders here, that's deep and profound. And the reason that you have this this, responsibility that is deep and profound is because this is the church of God. These are the very ones whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. See, Christ came that he might save his people from their sins. And so on the cross, Christ achieved something which is the salvation of his own. No one who doesn't believe in Jesus will be saved. It was never Jesus' intention to save anyone who wouldn't trust in him. And so when he came, he came with the intention, as he said, for his very own to save his own from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, as we read in the book of Revelation. And here he says, this church of God is my special people, those for whom I died, I purchased them, I obtained them with my own blood. And then he says this, Paul, to them. He says, I know, verse 29, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. As we read through the scripture, we find that Paul was a man of tears. We notice, for instance, earlier in this passage in verse 19, as he talks to them about his service to them, he says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. And we ask the question, what, what makes Paul cry? And we know from Romans chapter 9, for instance, that he, he was deeply sorrowful about his own fellow Israelites who did not believe, and that took him to tears. But he was also brought to tears over those in the context of the life of the church who had been ravaged by false teaching by these wolves that would come in. Because, you see, the grave danger for the church is not so much from without, but very often from within. That is, for those who are wolves, as he puts it, in sheep's clothing, Jesus used the same expression of those who look as if they're believers, but they're really not. And so the grave danger, that the protecting arm of elders in the church is not simply to protect from the outside, but also to protect from the inside. I've been, when I go to airports, one of the things I do when I'm bored, besides buying Snickers bars, I don't have to tell you that, you can tell that I've been doing that, but um, as I go to the bookstores and I, I, I look at the, 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 the books that are on the bestseller lists at airports, um, it's what I call boredom reading. This must be the thing that people buy when they're bored because that's the only reason I would ever spend retail at an airport to pay their prices to buy a book, which I did two weeks ago. I feel really bad about it. Um, I was really bored. My plane was delayed. and Oh, that's a story. I'll tell you that some other time. But uh, it's amazing. I, there was a book written by someone who's not even a Christian, and the title was Why God Wants You Rich. And it was right next to, dare I say, Joel Olstein's book with the same message. And how many of those books, and it's the job you see, the responsibility of elders to protect in the context of false teaching that would lead people astray and become shipwrecked in their own lives. Do you realize that the thing that's fueling the acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle in the United States is the church. Not us, the church. Not the evangelical church. But the church as it's understood in the U.S. What we would call the liberal church, which we would say isn't the church, but... And so you see, it's, it's that. Wolves in sheep's clothing, which dresses it up as justice, dresses it up as love, but is neither. Okay? So Paul knows that. And it's with tears that he pleads with these elders to watch the church. Because these are the ones for whom Christ has died. And we don't have to, to do, we don't have to be great historians to really think through the history of the world and the history of the church to realize the grave danger that the church has been in throughout the centuries and the great difficulties that we found ourselves in. And so Paul with tears says, watch yourselves, watch the church. Be shepherds of the church of God. John Donne in the 17th century, philosopher, theologian, poet, in preaching, wrote this. He said, What sea could furnish mine eyes with tears enough to pour out? 
if I should think that of all this congregation which looks me in the face now, I should not meet one at the resurrection at the right hand of God. When at any midnight I hear the bell toll from this steeple, meaning announcing the death of someone in the church, when at midnight I hear a bell toll from this steeple, must not I say to myself, what have I done at any time for the instructing or rectifying of that man's conscience, conscience who lieth there now ready to deliver up his own account and my account to Almighty God? You catch that? Let me read it again. This is the heart of one who is responsible for another. What sea could furnish mine eyes with enough tears to pour out if I should think that of all this congregation which looks me in the face now, I should not meet one at the resurrection at the right hand of God. He's saying, there aren't enough tears if I should ever think that one upon whom I'm looking now would not be with me in the presence of Christ at the great resurrection. When at any midnight I hear the bell toll from this steeple announcing the death of a church member, must not I say to myself, what have I done? at any time for instructing or rectifying of that man's conscious conscience who lieth there now ready to deliver his own account and mine to God. Understand elders must live with that for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the church. And I don't want to remove this from its context, but think in your own life. Isn't that true for you too? For those whom you hold most especially dear. Is that not true of parents for children? What see? I could furnish enough tears, you say. If on the death of a child, your own, you might think they would not be there with you in the resurrection. Because isn't that your heart for your child? Isn't, isn't that what drives you really? Now, now, sadly, to be honest with you, sometimes as parents, as with elders too, but sometimes with parents, we get off that track and we forget what's important, that eternal thing, the very souls of our children. But isn't that true of a husband for a wife? Isn't that the very point of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 when he said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and given himself for her. Isn't that husbands, what we're to think of our wives? They're very souls before God. That it's our job in sacrificing our lives in some sense, some real sense, that would make their souls rich towards God and healthy towards God and strong towards God so that at the time of the resurrection, there our wives are. And, and, and wives, isn't it very hard for your husband? Even as Peter writes in 1 Peter 3 of a, of a woman whose husband isn't walking with God, but, but isn't her motivation for living her life, even in quietness and submission, that she might win him. Or the wife married to the unbeliever who wants to stay in that relationship, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, isn't her heart's desire in the midst of that, that she might, that she might win him. Isn't that the heart of a wife for her husband? Isn't that the heart of a friend for a friend? The heart of a Sunday school teacher for those people in that class, be they children or adults, don't you drive around looking out your car window at passers-by wondering about the condition of their soul. At the gas pump, looking over at the other people pumping gas, don't you wonder 
what will it be for them and their soul? And isn't there a tinge at least of something that says, oh God. Paul talking to these elders said, this is it for you. This is your life. This is your calling. <laughs> Perhaps I just want to share the pain and the joy of that as well. So Paul is there with them and he's, he's telling them this. And he's crying out to them. And so what word will he give them in the midst of this with that kind of obligation, with that kind of solemn, privileged, joyful responsibility? In the same sense, what word could be given to a Sunday school teacher about the charges in his or her class or parents to their children or And I think it's this in verse 32, which is why I want to come there now. And Paul says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He's saying, uh, He says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. they're going to be committed. It really means to, to commit you, to, to put you right in the very presence of God. And we know that Paul does that. We know he does it for elders in the church. We know that he does it for people because he, he talks about praying all the time for the saints, all the time praying for them. And so that's how he's committing them to God. He said, I'm going to commit you to God. But not only that, I want you to commit, I want to commit you to the word of his grace. And I think that's the operative expression. That, if there is in this passage, that's the divine cordial. That's the, that's the sweetener. That's the thing that makes you smile. See, of all of this that, that Paul would be saying to them, you can just feel the grief. You can just feel the sorrow. Paul's saying, I'm not going to be with you. But then he goes even deeper in the midst of that and he says, listen, here's the job that's before you. The job that's before you is that, that your protectors, your feeders, your leaders, your guiders, your gatherers of the church in Ephesus... And, and you need to understand the seriousness of this, for this is the, these are the very people for whom Christ has given his own blood, that God has chosen before the foundation of the world to be his. And there are all kinds of difficulties that's going to come in the midst of them. And we know that. We know the difficulties that come. And he says, now what I want you to do is I want you to be their shepherds and lead them all the way home. Oh, what, could, what, what could make you... Feel good about that. What can make you smile in the midst of that? And he says, I want to commend you to God. So be God-focused. Don't think about yourselves, but think about God. And I want you to commend you to the word of his grace. And it's that word grace, I think, that, that catches us. Because we know what grace is. We know that it's, it's, it's God's unmerited favor to us. Because the first thing I think anyone would be thinking if they were in this position of elder or anybody in a position of responsibility, be it a husband, be it a Sunday school teacher, a parent, whatever, that you're thinking, how am I ever going to do this? I'm just simply not up for the task. And so we hear the word grace and there's some, 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 some cool breeze to that that says, yes, it's, it's, it's on the basis of the grace of God, not on my own ability, not on my own merit, but upon, but upon his in fact, when Paul was speaking of, of ministry altogether in Second Corinthians in chapter uh, 2, for instance, he puts it like this. He says, but thanks, verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to want a fragrance from death to death 
uh, to the other a fragrance from life to life. He's saying, listen, we're to live in such a way that we smell like Jesus. That everywhere we go, that those who are, who are the ones he's calling to himself, they'll just be around us. And the, the message that we bring and the witness and the testimony of Christ that we bring, they're to be drawn to us like a hungry man is to the smell of stew on the stove. And we're just to be brought in. But yet, to those who are perishing, we're to live in witness in such a way that they're to sense this aroma around us and see and feel and know their lostness. The next line is this. Who is sufficient for these things? (laughs) And the answer is, nobody, right? And then he writes, then in in, uh, chapter uh, 3, Uh, Verse 4, he writes, Such is the confidence that we now have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. And and, and so our sufficiency is in God. So he says, I want to commend you to the word of his grace. Meditate on grace. It's, It's not your ability, but his. And grace is not simply this, not only this unmerited favor that we receive from God that saves us, but it's also empowering. In 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 15, Paul speaks of his life like this. Verse, uh, verse 9. He says, For I am the least, speaking of himself, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we read that and we say, okay, I understand what you're saying, Paul. I understand that you're saying that you're a great sinner because you killed people. And, and so you are who you are. That is, you're an apostle. You're a Christian, first of all. And you're an apostle of Christ by the grace of God. It wasn't something you merited, but something that was given to you freely. In fact, it's not simply that you didn't deserve. It's that you deserve the opposite of what you got. You're not undeserving only, but you're ill-deserving of what you got. So we understand that. But then he goes on, curiously, to put it like this. He says, but the grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So this unmerited favor not only saved him, but empowered him, strengthened him, enabled him. It was the very grace of God in him that strengthened him to be able to do what he did. And he said he worked harder than all the others. Because this would be and is hard work. He mentions that uh, in, in Acts chapter 20. That, that, that this is hard work to which these elders are called. It's hard work to be a husband. It's hard work to be a wife. It's hard work to be a parent. It's hard work to be a friend. It's hard work to be a Sunday school teacher. None of this is is easy stuff. So you work hard at it. It consumes you. It takes you. It takes your energy. None of us should ever think that because we've received the grace of God that we don't sweat, that we don't get tired. That we don't get confused. That we don't become perplexed. But what we realize is that even though we're tired, in our weakness, the very strength of God comes. And that, amazingly and mysteriously, is the secret. Because, you see, the first thing that grace does is humble us. 
when a person says that he or she needs grace, it means that that person is unable, insufficient, incapable. That there is nothing that that person can do to do it on their own, to merit it on their own. That's what grace is. Grace isn't, well, I'll do this much and you do that much. Grace is, I can't. James writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, the proud person says, I can. The proud person says, I'm sufficient. The proud person says, I'm able. The humble person says, I'm overwhelmed. The humble person says, I can't. If I thought it would sell, I would write a book, not called The Prayer of Jabez, but The Prayer of Jehoshaphat. Now, the reason that The Prayer of Jabez sold is because the essence of it was, God, make me grander than I presently am. Now, if you remember Jehoshaphat, he was a uh, 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 king of Judah, and he looked around uh, in every corner, and there were enemies. And so the scripture says that he was afraid, and he sought the Lord. And, and he prayed, and he thinks about God, and he lays out his case before God. The prophet comes to him, uh, ultimately, to say, Jehoshaphat, the battle isn't yours, but it's God. But, but Jehoshaphat ends his prayer with a rhyme. And the prayer is this. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now, I don't think that would sell. <laughs> That's the prayer of humility. That's the prayer that says, I can't. But you see, we learn that grace comes to the humble. Because grace humbles. Because grace, if it's going to be received, can only be received by one who realizes that he or she can't. Paul puts it like this, 2 Corinthians and chapter 12. In verse 7. It says, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. So this is Paul's famous thorn in the flesh passage. We don't know exactly what that was, that thorn in the flesh. We don't know if it was a physical thing. Most think it probably was. Might have been bad eyesight. And so we read about in Galatians. It could have been those, come, those people who came to persecute him were thorns in his flesh. Could have been everything or every trouble that Paul knew about. But he seemed to have something specific here that he was after. So he says, to keep me from becoming too elated, uh, or too proud really, by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from uh, Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated or too proud. What's Paul saying? He says, I, I, I have this tendency... To get too puffed up about my own self and even what God is revealing to me. Now what happens when we get too puffed up about our own selves? Then we stop thinking we need grace because we start thinking we're just fine, thank you very much. We're really able to make this happen. And so Paul says, uh, God gave him something to humble him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I should leave, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. So you get the thorn. And I'll be honest with you. 
If you look into your lives, we all have them. And we probably know what they are. It might even be that other people don't know what they are. Well, we think they don't. We hope they don't. But we know what they are. We know that thing that's true of us, that when we face it, it makes us realize we can't. But then Paul says this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How can that be? It can be because when we're weakest, we're most dependent. And when we're most dependent upon God, we're most understanding of our need for grace, and we cast ourselves upon Him, and He brings strength. So Paul says to these elders, I know I just told you what you can't do to lead, protect the flock of God. Husband, I've just told you what you can't do in relationship with loving your wife. Because I said, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Not love, the, love your wife a little better than your neighbor loves his. Or love your wife better than the pastor loves his. But love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, submit to your husband. Palm hair, I'm going, who? <laughs> Submit to your husband as unto Christ. Children, obey your parents. Church, submit to one another in love. Obey your leaders. The divine cordial. I commit you to God. See yourself in relation to him and the word of his grace meaning you can't but his power is perfected in weakness so embrace that weakness receive that thorn and trust in him the scripture tells us that it was our Lord Jesus of course who suffered, he who was rich became poor, so that in his poverty we might become rich. And we know that this very grace comes through all that he has done. The Lord Jesus tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the apostle says, until he comes. The thing that kept Paul humble was not only the work that was before him, but he knew his own soul, he knew his own heart, and he knew who he was, and he knew the grace that had been given to him. 
And thus, how could he ever put himself over another? How could he ever himself think he was competent? Because his competence led him to kill believers. It was only the grace of God. He saw his weakness, depended upon Christ, became who he was. Let's pray, Father. Set before us is this table. Just looking upon it humbles us. For herein we see the very grace that's been given to us, the very grace that we need. Looking upon this table tells us that we are indeed spiritually bankrupt, that there's nothing we have to commend ourselves to you, Father. That our lives were so shattered by sin and the chasm between us so great that we could not cross it, nor would we want to. But it's your grace that came in Jesus. For he did, he was able, he did what we couldn't. Satisfy your righteousness. We see our weakness, our inability. That we're dead in trespasses and sins. That life only comes by way of Christ. And all that he's done. And so, Father, we, we look at this table and we realize it's the word of your grace that saves us And we look at this table and realize, too, it's this word of grace that empowers us, that strengthens us, that enables us. Father, I pray for the elders of our church, that you would so bless them, they would shepherd well the flock of God, protecting us even as we submit unto them. And Father, for each of us in the responsibilities that you give us, that we would look to the word of your grace, that we'd see how impossible our calling is, and that we depend upon you. Feed us now at this table, our dear shepherd. Cleanse us, bind our wounds, lead us into paths of righteousness. Lord Jesus, meet us here. Take this bread, take this juice. Use it in such a way that will cause our focus to be upon Christ and His grace. We may be strengthened for the days ahead. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and He invites to it all those who see themselves to be needy, weak, and need themselves, see themselves in need of a Savior, understanding themselves to be sinners in this very sight of God without hope except in God's sovereign mercy. And all those, therefore, who in dependence and humility receive him and depend upon him as he's offered to us in the gospel freely to all who trust in him.
and who desire to live a life that's fitting as a follower of Christ, which means one who is utterly dependent upon Him, looking to Him alone. That's true for you. Let me invite you to come. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you eat it, let these bells and whistles go off in your head. I've been committed to God and the word of His grace. Please come.